Chapter 8, Part 1 of Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daisy55. Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt, Chapter 8 The New York Governorship, Part 1 In September 1898, the 1st Volunteer Cavalry, in company with most of the rest of the 5th Army Corps, was disembarked at Montauk Point. Shortly after it was disbanded, and a few days later, I was nominated for Governor of New York by the Republican Party, Timothy L. Woodruff was nominated for Lieutenant Governor. He was my staunch friend throughout the term of our joint service. The previous year, the machine or stand pat Republicans, who were under the domination of Senator Platt, had come to a complete break with the anti-machine elements over the New York majority. This had brought the Republican Party to a smash, not only in New York City, but in the state where the Democratic candidate for Chief Judge of the Court of Appeals, Anton B. Parker, was elected by 60 or 80,000 majority. Mr. Parker was an able man, a lieutenant of Mr. Hill's, standing close to the conservative Democrats of the Wall Street type. These conservative Democrats were planning how to wrestle the Democratic Party from the control of Mr. Byron. They hailed Judge Parker's victory as a godsend. The judge at once loomed up as a presidential possibility and was carefully groomed for the position by the New York Democratic machine and its financial allies in the New York business world. The Republicans realized that the chances were very much against them, Accordingly, the leaders were in a chastened mood and ready to nominate any candidate with whom they thought there was a chance of winning. I was the only possibility, and accordingly, under pressure from certain of the leaders who recognized this fact and who responded to popular pressure, Senator packed me for the nomination. He was entirely frank in the matter. He made no pretense that he liked me personally, but he deferred to the judgment of those who insisted that I was the only man who could be elected, and that therefore I had to be nominated. Foremost among the leaders who pressed me on Mr. Platt, who pestered him about me to use his own words, were Mr. Quigley, Mr. O'Dell, then State Chairman of the Republic Organization, and afterwards Governor, and Mr. Hazel, now United States Judge. Judge Hazel did not know me personally, but felt that the sentiment in his city, Buffalo, demanded my nomination, and that the then Republican governor, Mr. Black, could not be re-elected. Mr. O'Dell, who hardly knew me personally, felt the same way about Mr. Black's chances, and, as he had just taken the state chairmanship, he was very anxious, anxious to win a victory. Mr. Quigley knew me well, quite well personally. He had been in touch with me for years, 
while he was a reporter on the tribune and also when he edited a paper in montana he had been on good terms with me while he was in congress and i was a civil servant commissioner meeting me often in company with my especial cronies in congress men like large speaker tom reed greenhouge butterworth and Dolliver, and he had urged my appointment as police commissioner on mayor strong it was mr quigg who called on me at montauk point to sound me about the governorship mr platt being by no means enthusiastic over mr quigg's mission largely because he disapproved of the spanish war and of my part in bringing it about mr quigley saw me in my tent in which he spent a couple of hours with me my brother-in-law douglas robinson also being present quigley spoke very frankly to me stating that he earnestly desired to see me nominated and believed that the great body of republican voters in the state so desired but that the organization and the state convention would finally do what senator platt desired he said that country leaders were already coming to senator platt hinting at a close election expressing doubt of governor's black availability for re-election and asking why it would not be a good thing to nominate me that now that i have returned to the united states this will go on more and more all the time and that he quickly did not wish that these men should be discouraged and be sent back to their localities to suppress a rising sentiment in my favor for this reason he said that he wanted from me a plain statement as to whether or not i wanted the nomination and as to what would be my attitude toward the organization in the event of my nomination and election whether or not i would make war on mr platt and his friends or whether i would confer with them and the with the organization leaders generally and give fair consideration to their point of view as to party policy and public interest he said he had not come to make me any offer of the nomination and had no authority to do so nor to get any pledges or promises he simply wanted a frank definition of my attitude towards existing party conditions to this reply that i should like to be nominated and if nominated would promise to throw myself into the campaign with all possible energy i said that i should not make war on mr platt or anybody else if war could be avoided that what i wanted was to be governor and not a fraction leader that i certainly would confer with the organization men as with everybody else who seemed to me to have knowledge of and interest in public affairs and that as to mr platt and the organization leaders i would do so in the sincere hope that there might always result harmony of opinion and purpose but that while i would try to get on well with the organization the organization must with equal sincerity strive to do what i regarded as essential for the public good and that in every case after full consideration 
or what everybody had to say who might possess real knowledge of the matter, I should have to act finally as my own judgment and conscience dictated and administer the unit of the state government as I thought it ought to be administered. Quigley said that this was precisely what he supposed I would say, that it was all anybody could expect, and that he would state it to Senator Platt precisely as I had put it to him, which he accordingly did, and, throughout my term as governor, Quigley lived loyally up to our understanding. In a letter to me, Mr. Quigley states what I had forgotten, that I had told him to tell the senator that I would talk freely with him and had no intention of becoming a fractional leader with a personal organization, yet that I must have direct personal relations with everybody and get their views at first hand whenever I so desired, because I could not have one man speaking for all. After being nominated, I made a hard and aggressive campaign through the state. My opponent was a respectable man, a judge behind whom stood Mr. Croker, the boss of Tammy Hall. My object was to make the people understand that it was Croker, and not the nominal candidate, who was my real opponent, that the choice lay between Crokerism and myself. Croker was a powerful and truculent man, the aristocratic of his organization and of a domineering nature. For his own reasons, he insisted upon Tammy's turning down an excellent Democratic judge who was a candidate for re-election. This gave me my chance. Under my attack, Croker, who was a stoic fighting man and who would not take an attack timely, himself came to the front. I was able to fix the contest in the public mind as one between himself and myself, and against all probabilities, I won by the rather narrow margin of 18,000 priority. As I have already said, there is a lunatic fringe to every reform movement. At least nine-tenths of all the sincere reformers supported me, but the ultra-pacifists, the so-called anti imperialists or anti-militarists, or peace-at-any-price men, preferred Croker to me and another knot of extremists who had at first ardently insisted that I must be forced on Platt, as soon as Platt supported me themselves, opposed me because he supported me. After election, John Hay wrote me as follows. While you are governor, I believe the party can be made solid as never before. You have already shown that a man may be absolutely honest and yet practical, a reformer by instinct and a wise politician, a brave, bold, and uncompromising, and yet not a wild ass of the desert. The exhibition 
made by the professional independents in voting against you for no reason on earth except that somebody else was voting for you is a lesson that is worth its cost at that time boss rule was at its very zenith mr byron's candidacy in eighteen ninety six on a free silver platform had threatened such frightful business disasters as to make the businessmen the wage workers and the professional classes generally turn eagerly to the republican party east of the mississippi the republican vote for mr mckinley was larger by far than it had been for abraham lincoln in the days when the life of the nation was at stake mr byron championed many sorely needed reforms in the interests of the plain people but many of his platform proposals economic and otherwise were of such a character that to have put them into practice would have meant to purge all our people into conditions far worse than any of those for which he sought a remedy the free silver advocates included sincere and upright men who were able to make a strong case for their positions but with them and dominating them were all the believers in the complete or partial repudiation of national state and private debts and not only the businessmen but the working men grew to feel that under these circumstances too heavy a price could not be paid to avert the democratic triumph the fear of mr bryan threw almost all the leading men of all classes into the arms of whoever opposed them the republican bosses who were already very powerful and who were already in fairly close alliance with the privileged interests now found everything working to their advantage good and high-minded men of conservative temperament in their panic played into the hands of the ultra reactionaries of business and politics the alliance between the two kinds of privilege political and financial was closely cemented and wherever there was any attempt to break it up the cry was at once raised that this merely represented another phase of the assault on national honesty and individual and mercantile integrity as so often happens the excess and threats of an unwise and extreme radicalism had resulted in immensely strengthening the position of the beneficiaries of reaction this was the era when the standard oil company achieved a mastery of Savannian politics so far-reaching and so corrupt that it is difficult to describe it without seeming to exaggerate in new york state united states senator platt was the absolute boss of the republican party big business was back of him yet at the time this the most important element in his strength was only imperfectly understood it was not until i was elected governor that i myself came to understand it we were still accustomed to talking of the machine 
as if it were something merely political with which business had nothing to do senator plack did not use his political position to advance his private fortunes therein differing absolutely from many other political bosses he lived in hotels and had few extravagant tastes indeed i could not find that he had any tastes at all except for politics and on rare occasions for a very dry theological wholly divorced from more implications but big business men contributed to him large sum of monies which enabled him to keep his grip on the machine and secured for them the help of the machine if they were threatened with adverse legislation the contributions given in the guise of contributions for campaign purposes of money for the good of the party when the money was contributed there was rarely talk of special favors in return each nation has its own pet sins to which it is merciful and also sins which it treats as almost abhor in america we are particularly sensitive about big money contributions for which the donors expect any reward in england where in some ways the standard is higher than here such contributions are accepted as a matter of course nay as one of the methods by which wealthy men obtain peregrines it would be well nigh an impossibility for a man to secure a seat in the united states senate by mere campaign contributions in the way that seats in the british house of lords have often been secured without any scandal being caused thereby it was simply put into mr platt's hands and treated by him as in the campaign chest then he distributed in the districts where it was most needed by the candidates and organization leaders ordinarily no pledge was required from the latter to the bosses any more than it was required by the business men from mr platt or his lieutenants no pledge was needed it was all a gentleman's understanding as the senator once said to me if a man's character was such that it was necessary to get a promise from him it was clear proof that his character was such that the promise would not be worth anything after it was made it must not be forgotten that some of the worst practices of the machine in dealings of this kind represented merely virtues in the wrong place virtues wretched out of proper relation to their surroundings a man in doubtful district might win only because of the help mr platt gave him he might be a decent young fellow without money enough to finance his own campaign who was able to finance it only because platt of his own accord found out or was apprised of his need and advance the money 
such a man felt grateful and because of his good qualities joined with the purely sordid and corrupt healers and crooked politicians to become part of the platt machine in his turn mr platt was recognized by the businessmen the big contributors as an honorable man not only a man of his word but a man who whenever he received a favor could be trusted to do his best to repay it on any occasion that arose i believe that usually the contributors and the recipient sincerely felt that the transactions were proper and subserved the cause of good politics and good business and indeed as regards the major part of the contributions it is probable that this was the fact and that the only criticism that could properly be made about the contributions was that they were not made with publicity and at that time neither the parties nor the republic had any realization that publicity was necessary or any adequate understanding of the dangers of the invisible empire which throve by what was done in secrecy many probably most of the contributors of this type never wished anything personal in exchange for the contributions and made them with sincere patriotism desiring in return only that the government should be conducted on a proper basis unfortunately it was in practice exceedingly difficult to distinguish these men from the others who contributed big sums to the various party bosses with the expectations of gaining concrete and personal advantages advantages in which the bosses shared at the expense of the general public it was very hard to draw the line between these two type of contributions there was but one kind of money contributions as to which it seemed to me absolutely impossible for either the contributor or the recipient to disguise to themselves the evil meaning of the contribution this was where a big corporation contributed to both political parties i knew of one such case where a state campaign a big corporation which had many dealings with public officials frankly contributed in the neighborhood of a hundred thousand dollars to one campaign fund and fifty thousand dollars to the campaign fund of the other side and and i believe made some further substantial contributions in the same ratio of two dollars to one side for every one dollar given to the other the contributors were democratics and the big contributions went to the democratic managers the republican was re elected and after his election when a man came up affecting the company in which its interests were hostile to those of the general public the successful candidate then holding a high state office was approached by his campaign managers and the situation put frankly before him he was less disturbed than astonished and remarked why 
I thought so-and-so and his associates were Democrats and subscribed to the Democratic campaign fund. So they did, was the answer. They subscribed to them twice as much as they subscribed to us. But if they had had any idea that you intended doing what you now say you will do, they would have subscribed it all to the other side and more too. The state official in his turn answered that he was very sorry if any one had subscribed under a misapprehension, that it was no fault of his, for he had stated definitely and clearly his position, that he of course had no money wherewith himself to return what without his knowledge had been contributed and that all he could say was that any man who had subscribed to his campaign fund under the impression that the receipt of the subscription would be a bar to the performance of public duty was sadly mistaken. The control by Mr. Platt and his lieutenants over the organization was well high complete. There were splits among the bosses and insurgent movements now and then, but the ordinary citizen had no control over the political machinery except in a very few districts. There were, however, plenty of good men in politics, men who either came from districts where there was popular control or who represented a genuine aspiration towards good citizenship on the part of some bosses or group of bosses or else who had been nominated frankly for reasons of expediency by bosses whose attitude towards good citizenship was at best one of Galo-like indifference. At the time when I was nominated for governor, as later when Mr. Hughes was nominated and re-nominated for governor, there was no possibility of securing a nomination unless the bosses permitted it. In each case, the bosses, the machine leaders, took a man for whom they did not care because he was the only man with whom they could win. In the case of Mr. Hughes, there was, of course, also the fact of pressure from the national administration, but the bosses were never overcome in a fair fight, and when they had made up their minds to fight, until the Saratoga Convention in 1910, when Mr. Stinson was nominated for governor. Senator Platt had the same inborn capacity for the kind of politics which he liked that many big Wall Street men have shown for not wholly dissimilar types of finance. It was his chief interest, and he applied himself to it unremittently. He handled his private business successfully, but it was politics in which he was absorbed, and he concerned himself therewith every day in the year. He had built up 
an excellent system of organization and the necessary funds came from corporations and men of wealth who contributed as i have described above the majority of the men with the natural capacity for organization leadership of the type which has generally been prevailing in new york politics turned to senator platt as their natural chief and helped build up the organization until under his leadership it became more powerful and in a position of greater control than any other Republican machine in the country, excepting in Pennsylvania. The Democratic machines in some of the big cities, as in New York and Boston, and the country Democratic machine of New York under David B. Hill, were probably even more efficient representing an even more complete mastery by the bosses and an even greater degree of drilled obedience among the henchmen it would be an entire mistake to suppose that mr platt's lieutenants were either all bad men or all influenced by unworthy motives he was constantly doing favors for men he had won the gratitude of many good men in the country districts especially there were many places where his machine included the majority of the best citizens the leading and substantial citizens among the inhabitants some of his strongest and most efficient lieutenants were disinterested men of high character there had always been a good deal of opposition to mr platt and the machine but the leadership of this opposition was apt to be found only among those whom abraham lincoln called the silk stockings and much of it excited almost as much diversion among the plain people as the machine itself excited anger or dislike very many of mr platt's opponents really disliked him and his methods for aesthetic rather than for moral reasons and the bulk of the people have consciously felt this and refused to submit to their leadership the men who opposed him in this manner were good citizens according to their lights prominent in the social clubs and philanthropic circles men of means and often men of business standing they disliked coarse and vulgar politicians and they sincerely reprobated all the shortcomings that were recognized by and were offensive to people of their own caste they had not the slightest understanding of the needs interests ways of thought and convictions of the average small man and the small man felt this although he could not express it and since that they were really not concerned with his welfare and that they did not offer him anything materially better from his point of view than the machine when reformers of this type attempted to oppose mr platt they usually up either some rather inefficient well-meaning person who bathed every day and didn't steal 
but whose only good point was respectability and who knew nothing of the great fundamental questions looming before us or else they put up some big business man or corporation lawyer who was wedded to the gross wrong and injustice of our economic system and who neither by personality nor by program gave the ordinary plain people any belief that there was a promise of vital good to them in the change the correctness of their view was proved by the fact that as soon as fundamental economic and social reforms were at stake the aesthetic as distinguished from the generally moral reformers the most part sided with the bosses against the people end of chapter 8 part 1 recording by daisy 55